Hello, and welcome to the Classroom Critics. I am Andrew Martino, and I am joined with the usual suspects once again, my companions and friends, Bill Ivers and Walter Freeman. And this afternoon, we are talking about Mudbound, a 2017 Netflix original film that is directed by Dee Rees, uh, with a screenplay by Virgil Williams and Dee Rees, which is uh, based on a novel by Hilary Jordan of the same name. Cinematography is by Rachel Morrison, uh, and it stars Carrie Mulligan as uh, Laura McAllen, Jason Clark as Henry McAllen, Mary J. Blige as Florence Jackson, Rob Morgan as Hat Jackson, Jason Mitchell as Ronzel Jackson, Garrett Hedlund as Jamie McKellen, and Jonathan Banks as Pappy McKellen. Basically, this film, just to kind of summarize it, is um, it's so complex, but um, I, I guess to simplify it, it to its most uh, common denominator, it's about two men returning home from World War II, uh, one black, one white, and they're returning to work on a farm in rural Mississippi. Um, and the film details not only the struggles with, with farm work during this time and the after effects of the Second World War, but also uh, race issues that are going on in the United States at this particular time. I have not read the novel. Um, I didn't know it was based on a novel till I, I actually saw the film. This gentleman is um, another Netflix original film that we're doing. Uh, we did The Irishman as well. So we may want to talk about that at some point uh, during uh, the podcast today. But I thought I would start by uh, just asking you both um, your general impressions of the film. This is incidentally another first for us. It's the um, it's the first time we're doing a film by a woman director. Um, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, and we've done uh, lots of films, and, and it really started out, Bill, this was your idea, as I think we've said in, in, in a couple of podcasts, and we were going to work through the AFI's top 100. And, and we started because Bill and I met at a party and we started discussing Orson Welles and our, our mutual love and affection for all things Welles. And, and, and Walter, you came into the mix and, and we started deviating a little bit, uh, especially during COVID um, when we found ourselves uh, under lockdown. And, and we really have been branching out to um, things that, that go beyond the AFI's uh, top 100. We've been trying to do a film by a woman director for a long time, and, and, and we both, um, all three of us, um, saw this film recently and thought that it, it made an impression on us um, that we would give this a go for the podcast. So, gentlemen, what are your, what are your initial impressions of this? Andrew, uh, just realized you, you just said that we uh, discussed Orson Welles at a party. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen often. I guess that's why the room was cleared, I guess. Huh? I, I, yeah, well, yeah, that's, nobody would talk to us, but we, we right. did, right? Right, we ended up being alone on that, uh, on that back deck rather quickly. Yeah, yeah. But, and our, uh, wives, our wives to this day do not let us forget that, by the way. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Well, um, for me, guys, I, I just, I honestly was very surprised at this film. I, I you know, I really, really... I guess maybe enjoy, enjoyed was is, is kind of the wrong term because there's so much about it that I guess I'm sure we'll get into that's, you know, horrifying and difficult to watch. But um, I, I, I was extremely surprised at how good this, this film was. Surprised uh, why? I just, I hadn't heard about it. You know, I really, it, it just seems like a film that was, um, I don't know, I, I have not heard much in terms of uh, critical acclaim or, or right. feedback. 
So when you mentioned doing this, Andrew, um, I, I said, sure. I, you know, I saw the, the trailer and it looked excellent. And, but coming out of it, I guess this movie for me is, is kind of a, a both beautifully, beautifully horrifying. Is, if that, is that, if that's a, a way I can put it, you know, it's on the one hand, it was lovely to watch entertaining, but very difficult to watch. Uh, I yeah. found it to be poetic and real at the same time. Uh, I was captive, captivated from start to finish. The characters for me were well-developed, well-drawn. Uh, of course, the performances to match were, were fantastic. A lot happening. I found this film to be just, uh, you know, there are a lot of inter interwoven plots, an ensemble piece. But at the same time, you know, even though all these interwoven themes and characterizations and motivations and all these things happening i did not it did not seem to me an overwrought film at the same time right it was just well done uh i thought the storytelling was eloquent uh the script as a script was you know it's fantastic yeah um just a well-crafted piece of work i think in, in every way cinematography um and i think and you guys could correct me if i'm wrong but this film you know when, when i saw the release date 2017 i think you mentioned andrew yeah is this an early indication of the direction of netflix in terms of feature films i know this wasn't a netflix production but it was bought up by netflix if i'm not mistaken and and um netflix was the platform of basically the distributor yeah it seems to me that it might might have been kind of like an early indication of look okay we can uh we can make cinema and release it through netflix mm -hmm. Well, and not to inter not to cut you off, but the, the James Bond film that's been made, uh, Die Another Day, that has been waiting for the COVID to lessen, to be released in theaters, is now in talk with both Netflix and Apple. Oh, is that to be right? Released through the streaming. Um, I didn't want to cut your thoughts off, Bill, but that was to the point you were making. Right, right. I guess it's that this idea that wow, you can make, um, you know, just some really great films, and have them exclusively be either Netflix productions or released through Netflix. And going back a few years, I think this is um, this might have been. We might look back on it as maybe one of the one of the first of its kind mm -hmm. in that respect. Uh, so I guess just very generally speaking, I, I really was pleasantly surprised uh, by this film because it's been in my head since I've seen yeah. it, and we actually we all saw this film a couple of weeks back. Yeah, we had some intentions of of doing a podcast shortly thereafter. But I think because the film was so complex, uh, I think we all had to either review it again, see it again, and just think about it more before we just sort of dove into this podcast. So I think these are mark markations for me of, of some great filmmaking. Yeah. Walter, what do you, what do you think? Well, um, I've only seen it once, and I meant to see it again, but, but, but things came up. And so my original impression with this film um, is – going to echo a little bit of what Bill said. Almost no fanfare. Uh, I know that it was released in some film festivals. I think it received a standing ovation at, I believe it was Cannes, but uh, Sundance. Um, Sundance. Sundance. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I actually I do have a little bit of a report on the film later, but anyway, back to my impressions. The complexity of the film, the strength of the characters, and the strength of the acting really are what stood out for me. And it's funny because as you were summarizing the film at the, at the introduction, Andrew, uh, you had said something. It's a story of two soldiers coming back from war. And I thought to myself, you can also say it's the story of a woman, a black woman trying to hold her family together. It's yeah. the story of a black man trying to live in the face of adversity. It's the story of a young lady cast 
at the bottom rung of society. It's the story. Any character in this, for the most part, it could be the central figure of the story. And it's also a story of two families. And that's the strength of this film is it's so consistently well-developed and interwoven that it's really hard to pin down what you would say this film, who, whose story this is, because it's everybody in its story. Right. And, and each character gets a chance to take center stage. Their journeys are compelling and um, really just, just leaves you kind of shaken. Uh, and so that was my first impression. I think um, I, I have a lot to say on, on this because I think all three of us are in agreement about this, that this is really a, a case of exceptional filmmaking. Um, and it, it's it, it, even more to the point, it's exceptional American filmmaking. And I don't say that lightly. I'm, I'm saying it in that way because what we're getting here is not this kind of big budget, um, you know, action-packed film. It's not Tom Cruise doing yet another Mission Impossible or yet another superhero film. And I'm not knocking those. They have their place. But this is, this is one of those, it's not a quiet film. It's a tough film to watch. But I think it's uniquely American. Um, for some of the reasons that we've we've already said, and and perhaps most importantly, it's 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 Hap trying to work so that he can buy his own property. And I find that you know this the pursuit of happiness really means the pursuit to to have property. If we go back to to John Locke's original intent there, and and the American right. forefathers had that in mind. So you know this this need for uh, an American the American dream is is tied up with the idea of property ownership. And we see that come through very strongly in this film at almost at all costs and great sacrifices yeah. are made. Yeah. I think, I think this is uh, one thing I think that makes this film very unique is, I mean, you can take a lot of plots from various films and sort of transplant the plot in various sure. settings and, um, and it would often work, but this I think is a uniquely American story, um, which I'm sure we'll get into the more specifics of and, and, uh, and it's not just the de not in the details, but I think in the the very nature of some of the motivations, it's 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 very um, regional, you know. So, which I'm sure we'll get to. I'm sorry, Walt. I think I cut you off. No, that's all right. A lot of films are are rhythm and blues. They hit certain very distinct beats. Where, as you say, is an original American film. This film sort of has a jazz rhythm to it. In yeah. that, it doesn't go with traditional beats. It really tends to really be a very freeform, flowing story. Yet it all comes together as a coherent composition. But I, I do have to say that I think that this film being released on a streaming service did it a little bit of a disservice because mm -hmm. one of the things that is lost is, is how gorgeous the cinematography is. And to see this on the big screen would really, you know, on the smaller screen, even a, a large TV, some of the scenes in the mud and in the rain are cramped. Whereas yeah. on the larger screen, I think that the glory of, um, of her name was Rachel Morrison. Rachel Morrison, yeah. Rachel Morrison. The glory yeah. of that cinematography would be better served. I think the same thing's going to happen with James Bond. Yeah. The action is going to feel a little more compact than it should. But anyway, um, I, I think that it's a, I think it's a, also a truly American story, <laughs> works and all, uh, in, in a lot of ways. That's and hopeful. I, th I think there's a lot of hope there. Too. I, I, yeah. I don't want to get too deep into the themes quite yet, but uh, you know, I, I think getting back to what you said about the cinematography, Walt, I mean, this is an ugly setting, you know, there's, there's, there's mud everywhere. You know, it seems to be like a, uh, a setting of death and mud and, you know, it's the places like Potter's field, death decay. I mean, there's that theme too. Carrie Mulligan's character is often talking about how 
just her life is, uh, she even mentions mud. She mentions um, death and blood is just almost part of their, their daily routine from, you know, hunger, struggle, even, ma even making a meal requires bloodshed. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's almost Southern Gothic to look at it, but at the same time, um, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of beautiful beauty in the cinematography as well. You know, the, uh, the, I remember one scene that sticks out to me is, is there was a, either, a, I think it was dusk uh, where the cinematographer really captured the, um, the sunset and the, the rolling hills. And it's just amazing when, uh, when that, again, that death decay, um, a place of fear can also intermingle with, with beauty because yeah. that's kind of the human experience. That's, that's the, that's the American experience right there. Rachel Morrison, by the way, is the first woman ever nominated for Academy Award for cinematography. And oh. she was nominated for this film. This yeah. film, I, I did a little reading on it and, and I would credit my info from Internet Movie Database. This film has a lot more firsts in it yeah. than you would think. Uh, and I have a list. I don't know if you're interested in sure, it. Sure, go ahead. Uh, but I think the list is germane to some of the uh, paths that this film has pioneered that, that might not... That, that need to be mentioned. So again, I'm going to credit Internet Movie Database for this. But bear with me here because it's this is a good amount of firsts. And it springs off of what you just said, Andrew. First woman nominated for cinematography in film and Academy Award. Uh, first non-documentary streaming film nominated, a feature film nominated in major categories. Uh, everyone of the film's four Academy nominations was female. Mm. Uh, best supporting, uh, best adapted screenplay, best supporting actress, uh, screenplay D. Reed, actress Mary J. Blige, best cinematography Rachel Morrison, um, and for Mary J. Blige, first black woman to receive multiple nominations in the same year, first nominated uh, film for acting and best song in the same film, first actor of any race to be directed by a black female director nominee, yeah, and then Mary, uh, continuing with Mary J. Blige, first black female actor directed to an Oscar by a black female director. And for Dee Reese, first black woman nominated for adapted screenplay, first openly gay black woman nominated for any Oscar category, and first female African-American to direct an African-American or any race to an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Which again, floors me that I didn't hear much of this film. And again, I'm not someone who keeps really in credible tune with, uh, you know, with what's going on in terms of acclaim, but uh, I'm just I'm just shocked that I I really had to, you know, uh, I only heard this through, about this film through Andrew. Yeah. Um, so, Absolutely. so I mean, maybe perhaps it's one of those films that you know maybe years from now, it, 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 you know, there'll be um, some traction and it'll be something to pay attention to, you know, in years to come, and it'll get far more acclaim than it did when it was first released. I remember it coming up on my screen, but I also kept thinking it was mud by with Matthew McConaughey, which I don't know anything yeah. about. And mm -hmm. I just kept saying I saw mud, and I just like go past it. Yeah, um, I uh, I I tried to watch this film. I have to to admit, I tried to watch it um, about a year ago. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about the cinematography, as long as we're on that, because I think it is so stunning. I watched about the first ten minutes of it, and I got frustrated because I love the story. Um, but I was I was upset with how dark it was. Literally, I didn't think the lighting was was you know it wasn't lit well enough for me. And it was only after coming back to it the second time that I realized that obviously they had done that on purpose 
to kind of replicate the what what, what the actors were going through at that particular time. The coming storm, um, the the really trying to bury the father, um, you know, before the storm hits. And then finding out that, you know, that they're digging up a, a slave graveyard um, and that the father, as we come to, will come to find out is, you know, would, this is the last place he would want to be buried. And then we go into flashback and, and the film is, is sort of told in, in that way until we come to the bookend of, of, of what happened. So I was really frustrated by that, that first scene the first time I saw it. And, and going into it a little bit more, it gradually lightens up, but... Um, um, I, I don't know if you had the same experience watching those first five minutes. Well, and again, I think I think it's the the limitations of the uh, of of your home TV yeah. and 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 sound because there's two things that really don't replicate from a theater: sound and uh, and that uh, depth of picture, that breadth, I guess. Right. No matter how big your TV is, um, and and also films look differently on on TVs than they do on the screen. There's something about the transfer. I mean, it may be clearer, but there's something not as visceral. And I think a lot of it is lost. Yeah. Um, so I could see that. I would imagine if we saw this on the big screen, that it, it would still be dark intentionally. So, but yeah. I think it would be more, more, um, more visible, more detail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's very appropriate that it begins with that scene. If you think about it, getting back to the, the, the grave scene. Um, again, I think that just really sets the tone for this, you know, perhaps you can talk, you know, talk about it in terms of being a, a Southern Gothic tale. I think, I think this film for me is very literary. You know, I think there's a, you know, uh, for me, the multiple narrations, mm -hmm. um, for me, that's almost felt like Faulkner, you know, um, uh, which was a uh, kind of a conceit of his where you have the very, you know, various chapters. Um, you could probably refresh my memory like, um, um, is Absalom Absalom? Is that Sound in the Fury is told from several different Sound, the Fury, Sound in the Fury, yeah. And I, I think that works well too, the um the various narrations. You know, that's the, the voice, you know, using voiceovers, you know, sometimes that's that's pointed to as uh a crutch in filmmaking. But I, I told I think we actually talked about this when we uh talked about Scorsese who uses voiceover quite a bit. But uh I thought that was extremely effective. I think the, the writer director does a wonderful job showing the the struggles of all these characters by hearing their authentic voice um and i think the director deeply cares about all these characters on some level you know so she doesn't seem um like she's pointing her camera towards a, a specific um protagonist it just seems like they, they are all important in the story all, all of them equally so uh, I just found the voice of a narration to be um, just an extremely excellent choice. I agree with you. I think this is, and I think your, your use of the, the term literary is, is, is particularly apt. It is a very literary film uh, in the best sense of, of the word. Um, you know, it, it's, as I said earlier, for me, it's a uniquely American film, not only because of the themes of the struggles, but the way that it's shot and the way that there, you know, th this tie to the land um, and, and the farming community. And, and I think you're quite right to, to bring up someone like Faulkner. It's, it's hard to think about Mississippi um, and not think about Faulkner in a sense. Um, and again, right. not having read the original novel, we're, we just had the screenplay to go by, but um, certainly um, the, the, you know, the two screenwriters here did, did a lot of thinking about what this was trying to portray. 
can we can we recap as to uh, which voices were used for the voiceover narration? We have uh, Laura, right? Yeah. She's one. She's one character. Um, um, Jamie was one of the narrators too. Um, I think he talked about his brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, we have. Mr. Jackson, correct? Yeah, and and Ronzel, I think as a, as a Ronzel. Yeah. Is that it? I, I, I always find it very interesting when a when a filmmaker, or storyteller, whether it's, whether it's through a novel or or in, you know the the choices of who is going to um, be telling the story. You know, I, I just I find it interesting that of of who doesn't. You know, when you look at an ensemble cast, what, you know who doesn't get to right. tell their story and why. It's it's very interesting. You know, those choices. I'm not saying I have a theory right now, but it's, I think it's always kind of interesting to think about. Well, that's a unique choice. And when I watch this film again, I'm going to definitely, I'm going to focus on that. That's going to be something I'm going to say, you know, each character has something to say outside the frame of the film. Why, why that, why that perspective? Because again, it, it, in lesser hands, it would be inconsistent. You'd be like, well, whose story is this? But in this, it, as you said, it works very well. Hmm. And and I think there's a, a a weight to that that I'm going to want to pay attention to a little bit more next time. It yeah. Typically, they're probably the most insightful characters, the best observers in the story. You know, um, you know who wants to hear from uh, you know the father there. I mean, yeah. he doesn't. <laughs> I don't think he has an inner voice. <laughs> and that that may be the point, right? Um, Let's talk about the, the the relationship between the two um, the two soldiers. Um, obviously, one is black and one is white, and they're they're you know they're they come out of two very different experiences in the war. Both of them are are, are tragic, um, but you know, I think one person loses himself, and one and the other um, kind of finds him, himself and finds a place in Europe. Mm. I, it's interesting because I thought about that a lot, and of course, they they both start out from different places. Right. Where the young, uh, the young white character uh, Garrett Hedlund's character is um, more or less uh, happy-go-lucky, ne'er-do-well, whereas Roncel is always known struggle and hardship. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, Hap goes to um, not Hap. I'm sorry. Uh, Jamie goes to war, and he finds um, violence and, and horrifying violence that shatters him. Roncel goes to war. And even though he sees battle and he, he's still struggling with racism, he also finds peace and happiness. And yeah. if you want to notice, ironically, some of the most softly lit, brightest scenes in the film are him at war. Right. In that room with his, with his German woman. Uh, and I just found that very ironic that normally you're going to cut away to war and you're going to show the suffering there. And they do for, for Edlin's character. But for him, they, they show some, but they mostly show where he's finding love and happiness in, in a world where Mississippi doesn't exist and the values right. of Mississippi. And it is, it is I, at least from my point of view, it is very, it's a lot less racist in Europe that they're, they're, he isn't treated in the same way that he's treated back home. Um, and we get, I, I think this comes through in that one powerful scene in the store that I'm sure we'll talk about um, later in the podcast. But I'm glad you brought up that point of being the softly lit aspects during the war, because we don't really see Ronzel often in the tank. 
Um, if he's not with his with his girlfriend at the time, he's he's sort of leaning out of the tank, and they're in the midst of going from one place to the other. So you're right; it's it's more often than not daylight, and and you know there's this sense of they're at war, but they're they're sort of in this liminal um, uh, space at the moment. And then of course the the tank is hit, and 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 things change for him, but. You know, and he's also involved, he becomes romantically involved with a white woman, which mm-hmm. in Mississippi wouldn't be possible. Uh, he couldn't even sh- carry her picture around in Mississippi. Right, right. So it's just terrible to think that he had to cross an ocean, become immersed in a war. Right. And he feels perhaps more free and at peace um, <laughs> with his surroundings. Uh, in a place far from home, you know, it's just, it's really, in fact, um, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, I, I seem to envision some of these scenes overseas where he's, he's smiling more. Yeah. And you rarely see him smiling at all while he's out and about, um, you know, outside his home in, in Mississippi. I think smiling is dangerous in Mississippi for a black man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was really moved by their, getting back to your original question, uh, Andrew, I was very moved by that, the relationship of these two men, two soldiers and former, former soldiers who, um, you know, who come back and, you know, one thing that does, you know, obviously they are in very d- different situations coming back, but on the one hand, they are, um, you know, they have this PS- PTSD uh th- reality that they're dealing with and um that really struck me and it really kind of it just sort of became kind of a far more common ground for them Mm -hmm. and one line that really or i can't really cite a line right now but i one moment uh ronzel confronts jamie at one point and basically asks them just straight at straight on um you know why why you like this with me you know he's he's earnestly puzzled by Jamie's um, favorable treatment of him. Uh, I just found it to be pretty, pretty moving. And um, he just can't, he just could not understand. So, um, but yeah, that whole, that whole dynamic there, I just found to be uh, found fairly moving and it really just, you know, we'll get to the ending of it, but I think it really. um, They both come back damaged, obviously, and this is this is a theme that runs all throughout American literature, in particular, about the soldier who comes back from the war and can't talk about it. Right? You know, Hemingway has stories like this. So does Faulkner, um, and 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 so does uh, Norman Mailer and 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 others. So what happens? You know, for me, they get together because they're the only two who can talk about their experience. That they'll, you know, they have that shared experience, even though they weren't together um, fighting in the same unit, and and you know. Jamie comes back completely wrecked, right? He's an alcoholic. Um, and we probably see signs of that in the beginning because, as you said, Walter, he's this happy-go-lucky guy who's very easy on the eyes. You know, he's, he's lucky with women and he has everything going for him. And then he comes back and he's completely wrecked. Um, and, he, and, you know, he finds himself hiding in a bottle. Um, to escape. And he sees this kid, I think that, you know, the first moment that, you know, he's picking him up off the side of the road to give him a ride, which is, you know, in, in Mississippi at this time is, you know, dangerous for both of them. Uh, and then they, they, they sort of form this bond because they talk about their shared experience. Um, I found that to be really, really, as you said, uh, Bill, touching. 
I, you know. I kept looking at Garrett Hedlund in the film and thinking he looked like someone took an Errol Flynn doll and broke it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way, yeah. Um, and because, you know, that, that dashing handsomeness, but shattered. And again, and I'd like to, part of me wants to call out Hedlund's performance, but then I look at every one of these actors in here, these primary actors, um, and I'm not a fan, for example, particularly of Jason Clark. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's done some fine work. I've seen him in Zero Dark Thirty and some other things, but I've also seen him in some really terrible films. Um, and he, along with everyone else here, he he's completely flawless in this film in terms yeah. of performance. None of them are showy. None of them are overplayed or underplayed. They're all just right on. And even Jonathan Banks, who is so, whose character is so unrepentant, um, it, it's a brave performance because he, he refuses to allow us to feel any moment of sympathy for him. I mean, if you even look at the picture behind me of him with his, yeah. his eyes. Are dead. So anyway, uh, the acting here, and we, we'll talk about it at some point, I'm sure, just you can't pick a standout in this film yeah. of these principles. Yeah. 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 And I think it's interesting. I think you mentioned, uh, Andrew, about the, you know, the, the changes of these characters uh, after the war and, and how it's broken them. But, you know, when you think about they return to a place that hasn't changed at all, yeah. you know, it's it's but at the same time they have. And I can't imagine uh, what kind of what kind of struggle that that might be. There's one scene at, in, where um, Ronzel's mother comments you know she she's watching him just um just wander you know uh, and she mentions something along the lines of he seems to be waiting for something to happen yeah um and i you know i, I actually have a couple friends who have uh you know who, who were in the military and, and and one of the things they they say you know you're trained to do when you're being trained for war is is you you have this mentality of you're always waiting for the word waiting for the word waiting for the next order what's going to and that's that's got to stay with you for a while at least and especially when you actually apply it to to combat here and i can't just imagine the frustration of of returning to a place um especially for ronzel where you know why do you come why do you come back obviously his family's there but yeah. why 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 else would he want to be there right you know um, and more to your point, Bill, he, he, you know, the, his father, Hap, expects him to pick up the hoe and start working, right? There's, there's work to be done. They, you know, they're, they're under a time crunch to get the land ready for, for the next crop. So, um, you know, there's that expectation that, as you said earlier, things don't change back at home. That, the, you know, somehow the world um, stood still while it, it was in a, a kind of free fall in Europe at the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. So... Let's talk a little bit about the dynamic with this family, though the um, uh, the McAllens, right? So we have we have what I thought was really the main character uh, in in this particular family, which is Henry, um, played by Jason Clark. You know, it begins the film with him, and and obviously he's the older brother, and he's kind of taking charge, and he kind of uproots this his new bride and his new family, and and brings them to this, um, you know, this. He doesn't mean to bring him to this broken down shack, but he was taken, right? Uh, we see him that he had agreed to rent a house um, and he goes there and, and, and that turns out to be kind of, you know, false. Uh, and his father doesn't let him off the hook uh, and says to the effect, you got taken. Um, so there is this sense that the father, uh, Pappy, played by Jonathan Banks, is, is um, you know, 
we'll talk about his racism in a, in, in a moment, I'm sure, but the way he treats his sons as well, as if they're not quite good enough. Um, yeah. He's that kind of father. It's almost cliche, but it's so well acted that it, it doesn't quite turn to cliche for me. Well, I think it's important too because he's, you know, he's the embodiment of, of hate and, and yeah. it just, it just emanates from him. And uh, it's perhaps even impossible for him to show any uh, sort of compassion or, or empathy for his own kids. Um, it just, it just seems to be not in his, in his, in his hardware, you know, but uh, I think it's a, it's a stark contrast when you um, look at the relationship between uh, Mr. Jackson and Ron Zell, which is one of, uh, of deep love and, yeah. and pride. And um, for me, one of the most difficult scenes uh, is the farewell scene kind of getting back towards the, uh, the beginning of the film, the farewell scene where Ron Zell is going off to, uh, off to war. And that scene kind of lingers a bit. And I, I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's too long. It's, 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 you know, he, he goes through uh, this sort of farewell process with, uh, with all of his rather large family. And I think it's extremely moving. Um, it's important that we see this because I, I just can't imagine the possibility of, uh, of saying goodbye to a son for possibly the last, the last time, you know, and they, they know this, they, they absolutely know that, you know, we may be, we may be saying goodbye to our son for the last time. You don't get that in the relationship between, uh, Jonathan Banks' character and his kids, you know, and the idea of defending a country that doesn't view him as worthy of sharing with, you know, sharing the same dream as, as white, white soldiers, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like, a, like a dream of owning one's own land, you know, it's, it, that's, that, you know, there's so many themes in this, we can just, we can do a whole podcast on every one of these themes, you know, but, you know, I think it's just, worth mentioning again the 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 contrast between the both both father and son relationships which you know my own writing and and when i as i think of literature that i've read over the i just for me father and son or whatever parent and child relationships is something that really resonates with me right now you know you know the henry henry's father calls him a um you know a damn fool for getting swindled and and you can just see the hurt it, it's just a moment. You can see the hurt in uh, in Henry's face, uh, in in a reaction shot after being called that, and um, you know that I think it hits home. You know, with us, just what we what we say to our kids. You know, what we say, what we don't say. And yet, he's the father is dependent on that son because he's gone to live with him, and so there is you know that that dependency has now shifted, and it's the son taking care of the father, but the father doesn't want to relinquish the authority that goes along with that, you know, that kind of traditional concept of, of parents. And, yeah. and that's where we see a fun scene, not fun, fun, but interesting scene when Laura puts her foot down. Yeah. And the father is really oh, to the lean to. So that's a bedroom. Right. right. <laughs> that was a great scene. Yeah. It, it was. Um, you know, I also love, um, I also love the fact that Laura is, you know, she's, she's someone who's interested in, in art and literature, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the piano, of course, it seems to be something that's really important to, you know, to her and just the importance of hanging on to artistic expression and beauty, even when decay and whatever hatred is, is all around you. And I think she, uh, you know, she, I think she, the film kind of touches upon that reality through her. For me, the, the piano is very important because it stands for humanity. 
and and that's how she's holding on to it. You, you you've suggested that, Bill, and you know she does she refuses to get rid of that piano. Um, yeah. You say, well, we could you know move the piano and make room for for the father, and and she adamantly refuses to do that. It's that shred of civilization that she's holding on to. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an, more than that. It's humanity. Yeah, and it's a no brainer. I mean, you she she's you know you you tell me you want me to um, replace this thing of beauty, this piano, with this poor excuse for a human being, you know, um, <laughs> that's not going to happen, you know. Yeah, yeah and the way he treats her. That's dynamic is um, there's a clear attraction between her and Jamie that even Henry sees. Yeah. And, and you can see the kind of wary pain that he has there. And he knows that, that Jamie has that beauty that she craves, though he is also damaged you know, as well. What is it yep. that you think makes Henry tick? I found him to be a really, really interesting character, but but at times he comes off, and I think this is done, I'm in no way criticizing the actor. I think it was it was purposeful, but almost cardboardish, you know, in a sense that, and by that I mean to say he's very, um, you know, driven to do one thing and one thing only. I think he's, um, I don't know, he's kind of like a composite of his brother and his father. Yeah. You know, um, there is some of his dad, I mean, at least from what I can gather, it's, there seems to be some of his dad within him. You know, he's, he's a racist man, yep. um, without a doubt. But I think there's hope for him. You know what I'm saying? I don't think there's any hope for the, for the father. He's, he's gone. He's, his, his heart is completely hardened in stone. I just don't think there's any redemption with him. Um, but with um, Henry, I, I know I, I think there's a struggle there. There's a struggle there, and uh, so I just I just think that he might be more of the norm, perhaps, where the, the father is so such an extreme, which obviously they that, that, that exists, but he's more of a trope in this film. Um, where I think maybe Henry, am I getting the name right? Yeah, Henry. Yeah, <laughs> Henry where I think he may be just far more uh, common in number the norm of that, of that particular time. Does that make sense? It, it does. Yeah. Well, well, what do you think? Well, I think he, you know, beyond racism, the, the trade he carries from his father is a single mindedness to the point that he's not going to admit that the ship is sinking. Yeah. And, and you know, just like his father's racist ideals, even though they're very much thriving in this time period in Mississippi, are ultimately going to end up buried in the mud. And um, I think that as his dreams are too, I think Henry, I think the best thing that could happen to Henry is that this is an utter failure and he leaves this farm and he leaves this land. Because at the beginning of the film, he went to college, he was an engineer. That's right. And, and then we see him being swindled and then we see him, you know, carrying his racist tendencies and and, and his uh, inability to, to make this farm work and make his marriage work and be successful. I think that he needs to fail to yeah. break out of this single mindedness that he's latched onto. And, and the same thing that allows a man like his father, like Pappy to, to hold on to the twisted ideals of racism are, are, are making him hold on to the twisted ideals of this farm. And he's never going to be a person until it, until he leaves it behind. He, you know, you've just reminded me of something we, we mentioned uh, Faulkner and Hemingway's is two writers that, that have, I see as kind of influential to this, but there's also Eugene O'Neill, 
um, you know, in that sort of, you know, Morning Becomes a Lecture or Desire Under the Elms, those plays about, you know, there's a, there's a, a line in Eugene O'Neill, and I forget which play it is, it's one of those two, where he said, God is hard, God is in the stones, that if we work hard enough, we'll, we'll sort of rise or, you know, we'll, we'll make it. And that's, a, for me, a typically American idea. And I think that Henry has, has sort of caught on to that and, and won't let go. If I just work hard enough, I'll succeed. And if I don't quit, I'll succeed. But I see Henry as that, and, and you both alluded to this, I see Henry as the kind of, as, the, as this bridge between father and his younger brother. And you can look at it almost in stages of evolution, right? That the father is not evolved. We get a, you know, a, a more improved version in Henry and then an even more evolved version when we get down to, to Jamie. And, and, the, and by that, I mean to say the sense of being accepting, of having a sense of empathy and, and of being a human being. And, and his friendship, um, Jamie's friendship with Ronzel is, is proof of that, I think. Well, that makes the opening image of the film the symbol of that even more because uh, both Henry and Jamie uh, have a, something the other is missing, um, yeah. stability versus uh, humanity. And they literally have to help each other out of the muddy grave at the beginning. Exactly. That's, that's good point. that, they, they'd be stuck. So. Right. And, 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 and of course, that when, when um, Henry goes to get the ladder and Jamie freaks out and starts yelling and, 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 and Henry comes back almost bewildered, um, you know, what the hell's going on? Why, do, why are you screaming? And he said, I thought you were going to leave me here. Um, you know, right. so there is, you still see that dependency that Jamie has uh, on Henry. And it's, that, that was, for me, a very touching scene. Um, you, you see that raw nerve, um, regardless yeah. of the war experience, I think. There's a, uh, I think, a pretty powerful moment, right, you know, during that scene when you have the, um, the, car, the cart approaching with the Jackson family. Uh, you know, and they, they're arriving where, you know, where their help is needed. And so Henry goes over and demands help. Um, but what, one thing that's interesting is when, as he's approaching, this one little moment when uh, Mrs. Jackson sort of like puts her hand on Mr. Jackson's hand yeah. as, if to, as if to say, um, okay, um, uh, a, a, a white man walking towards us you know, right now can mean many different possibilities. And of you course, know. as viewers good. starting the film, we don't know what the situation is. So right. we don't know other than this could be trouble. Right. So, you know, that little, that one little touch to me communicated, uh, you know, fear, love, be careful. Um, let's be cautious here. Just because, um, you know, this, this man was walking towards them. And for very good reason, uh, that was something to be feared, you know, and I, I think it, I thought it was a very, you know, sad, but um, profound little moment. And I think the two brothers, um, I think one thing in my mind uh, that, that sprung to mind when I, when I think about the, the two brothers, I think, um, you know, a new, a new generation can bring either little to no change, but a new generation can bring profound change, significant change. And I think, um, depending on what, you know, obviously what direction, if you go, let's say towards, um, you know, Henry's outlook and frame of mind, you know, there's not much, not much progress there. Right. But I think uh, the younger brother, as you said, represents a, a, a further step in, 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 evol in the evolutionary um, mindset that we're discussing here. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like two paths, you know, which path does one take? Um, I found the be interesting. Um, 
one difference between the two families I thought that's pretty interesting is, uh, well, I also was pretty interested in how important faith is to the Jackson family. Yeah. Um, especially when you think of, let's say, you know, the, the you know, religious hypocrisy, what we can pretty rightly call religious hypocrisy uh, in the South where you have, you know, you know, all this talk of, uh, you know, whatever, you name it, love, peace. Yeah, we're uh, talking very New Testament, right? You know, turn the other cheek, accepting of... Forgiveness. Of, yeah, yeah turn, turn the other cheek, absolutely. Uh, yet, you know, I, I'm, we don't have to go into it, but, you know, obviously there's, there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy with that mindset. But when I look at the faith of the Jackson family, it just seems to be a real uh, deep faith um you know during the darkest deepest struggle that you know you can think of in the human experience you know it's there's just some great dignity and the, the faith for me is just it's it's real it's not it's not ritual to right. me and it, you know I, just, I think it's very key that mr jackson well, he he is a, a preacher too a, the preacher of that of that church right so um again just a very deeply spiritual man um you know if you ask me well, you know, if you look at the parallels between the two families, I mean, look at all of the things the Jacksons have. They have a loving marriage, not one fraught with sexual temptation in the others. They have mutual respect for one another. They have hopes and dreams and aspirations, including the daughter who wants to be, I think, a court stenographer. They have dreams of getting out of this life and, and aspiring to something better, whereas the McAllens, at least in the form of Henry, are sort of their dream is getting back into this life to, to come back to Mississippi and to, to, to make something out of it. And these folks have thrived and survived, but they would like more. And yet they're, you know, the, the world in which they live is so viciously, viciously stacked against them that they've developed a kind of insular stoicism. And it's funny because <clears throat> there's nothing in this family we haven't seen in other films. And yet it still feels fresh here. Mm -hmm. It still it does. feels there, that there's a, it, it's, it's like, you know, the, the nobility and the stoicism, the, the problems that they have, and, the, and again, and Hap is also equally stubborn, but it just feels so, so new. And even though I've seen this story before. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, when you read, let's say, a, a summary of the film, you, you, you know, part of you says, okay, is this going to be adding anything new to this discussion? The answer is absolutely yes. You know, um, you know for me, I think, one comparison that stuck out to me when it comes to comparing the two families, uh, I think it's very powerful and sad at the same time as you know, when, you, when you talk about the difference between how these families help each other out. All right. So uh, the Jackson family helps the other family out of simple kindness. It seems in, in you know, altruism, the, you know, the help that they receive, of course, you know, obviously there's, um, there's nothing that they necessarily could do about it, but their help does not come with a cost or, the, you know, the, the, there's no price, I should say, for the help that, let's say, um, you know, the medical help that was uh, given. Um, however, when the Jackson family helps, I'm sorry, when, well, well, Henry's family, what, what is it? What's the, what are their names? McCallans. McCallan. When the McCallan family helps the Jacksons, uh, you know, it does come, you know, you, you, when the mule is lent, let's say, right. 
uh, there's a, there's a cost for that, right? If refresh your memory, it's fifty percent of the yeah, yeah. outrageous, oh, right? They attach their wages, yeah, right. But then again, we have um, Carrie Mulligan's character. She steals money from her husband, right, in order to get medical attention for Hap. Am I remember that correctly? Breaks his leg, yeah. So she, yeah, she goes over her husband's head. So, um, you know, she has certainly has that compassion. Um, it's funny you mention it because it's the two women, right, that that transgress in a way. Um, Florence leaves her family with her. You know, she she she's the one who talks her husband into saying, "I need to do this," and she justifies it to him by saying, "We need the money. This will help us get us closer to that goal." But I think that she's just telling him this. I think that there's a need for her um, to, to help, just a genuine kindness there. Um, and it may not be, I might be stretching here, it may not be accidental that her first name is Florence, you know, the Florence Nightingale sort of, you know, giving up oneself there. But she goes and she, she stays with that family to, to really help out. And, and, you know, and then on the other side, it's, as you said, um, Laura, um, you know, Laura McAllen steals money um, to, to give to, to the Jackson. So there is transgression and there is that theme of transgression. I find it really interesting that it's the female that is the transgressor. Right. Uh, and I say that in, in the sense that there's courage that goes along with that, that the males don't, don't exhibit. So they have to transgress in order to do the right thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Because they're going against a couple of things, right? Society um, and, and all of the tradition that's wrapped up within that society. Um, yeah. And they're also going against gender, right? And the, the social constructions of gender, of, of a woman you know, being subservient to, to, um, to her husband. And really quick, while I'm thinking of it, I love that little scene where um, uh, Ronzel gives a candy bar to his mother mm. remember, yeah. that, remember that correctly yeah. you know it, it it's a moment you know it's a little moment in the movie but i just one interesting line it's just such great writing the mother says you know i'm going to give this to the to the other children that was her first instinct you know yeah. i'm going to share this with the other and that's 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 what mothers do you know good mothers they uh you know we we might have seen this in our own lives where you you try your best to give <laughs> you, you know your mother a gift and uh, it's like her first thought is, how can I make others yeah. happy with this? It's not to indulge it, uh, to indulge herself. So I thought that's cool. It's very within her character. And while I'm on that, on her as a character, what, what, what's with her sunglasses? What, what did you make of that? Uh, she, she always has sunglasses on. What's, uh, what do you think? That's an interesting choice. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. Is it anachronistic? Cause I know, it, uh, Sunglasses are very specific to a time period. And even then, I don't think that they came around uh, quickly. Maybe, you know, she spent her life in the sun, in the fields. Maybe she has weak eyes. I, but it would be a luxury, I would think, right? To have sunglasses as a kind of, especially for, for a family that is struggling to, to get out from under a kind of subservient, um, you know, situation. It's, yeah. it's almost, maybe this is her, her, her only kind of, um, you know, uh, her only treat in a way. I mean, in a world where like, you know, Bill mentioned a candy bar, 
yeah. is a luxury almost beyond imagining a right. pair of sunglasses, that would be like a yacht. Right, exactly. In, in relative terms. But um, at the same time, if point. it's something she needed badly enough, something tells me that her husband would, would move mountains to yeah. get them. So yeah, I mean, it could be a, um, a vision thing. I just, I couldn't, um, I can't remember having only seen the film twice. I can't remember any, uh, any, any allusion to it or, or reasoning or, so it has to be symbolic or, or something, but yeah. um, sorry, I put you in the spot. I just couldn't think of any. Uh, no, it wasn't. Yeah. I think it was a good point to make. And, and again, it's worth uh, considering. I'd like to return real quickly to my saying, this was a familiar story, but told in a fresh way. This is what it reminds me of. And I got to be careful here because I'm not saying that they're plagiarizing, but this is to kill a mockingbird but more realistically told from the point of view of the Robinsons and the Yules. Mm. Um, whereas you have these families on the lower end of society, but, but, you know, again, Atticus and his family at some point were more genteel, but this is the, the, the family of racists who might have a, a young lady in there that maybe has some sympathy and, and a young man with a drinking pride. And then you have a family of, of folks that have, just grown up being put upon and harassed and persecuted and have developed a stoicism beyond belief. This is, and it's, it's Alabama. This is next door to Macomb County, but I think told in a, what makes it fresh for me is it's so much more believable. There's no, um, I think, you know, to kill a mockingbird soft sells a lot of the stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's no, trial I think and, and all. That's right on. Yeah, that's an interesting insight there. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a it's an original story, original plot. Um, you know, for me, as I was watching this, you know, I kind of asked myself, how is this all going to end? You know, and uh, I was uh, for a while, I was expecting this to be a, a really dark statement. You know, and I think there is a lot of darkness in this film, but um, I think the ending, the resolution of this film, was was also brilliant because it it offered some hope. It came out of left field too. Yeah. It offered I really some thought, and I'm going to build on what you said, I really thought Ron Sell was dying at that point in that, in that barn with the KKK members. And I thought that Jamie was too. He was going to yeah. uh, go out in a blaze of glory or something in revenge. And, and so for this film to turn to where it did, um, kudos to the storytellers for, um, for finding that hope. Absolutely. So let's talk about that scene because it, it is really where the, the you know the climax happens for the film, and and for those who haven't seen the film, we we won't we won't give you any spoilers other than that you know um, the father Pappy McAllen um, is part of the KKK um, and and they they capture for all intents and purposes Ronzel um, and and really for me that is the big part of it, but it's also Pappy McAllen trying to make his son, um, Jamie pay for something, right? Be a man and you have to do this. So they capture him. They, they, you know, they, they, they strip him and, and they're, they're kind of, they have him not strung up, but they, they have him tied up and, and kind of lifted off the ground. And, and Pappy says, you, you're, you know, we're going to do one of three things and you're going to choose. Um, it's a horrific, horrific scene to watch. It's like a, a version of a Sophie's Choice in a sense. It really is. And for me, it's, it's even more horrific because things like that happened. Um, and we still see things like that happening today. That we're not seeing any, you know, we, we haven't really come very far in, in, in the time period that this is set to where we are today in, in 2020. 
um, the circumstances really haven't changed. So it, especially with what we've been going on, just you know, for context, in the United States over the past summer and well into the fall now, um, especially with things like Black Lives Matter, um, we've become super um, attuned to, to the difference in race and, and how we look at race, how we treat race in this country, and I think perhaps most importantly, how we ignore, the, the, how some of us ignore a racial issue. Um, this doesn't pull any punches in this particular scene. No, and I think it's, there's a timeliness to that because you know we, we, we fell into the trap of thinking we've really come a long way, and in some ways we have. Yeah. Uh, and just just the triumph of the women who made this film and the actors who starred in this film and, and all of the kudos that they've earned, rightfully earned for that, show, you know, some progress. But on the other hand, the legitimizing of racist attitudes and r vicious racism and violence uh, in this country, which is unforgivable, has shown that it's really there if and it's not far from the surface at all times. I think it's a very interesting resolution where uh, Ron Zell's character moves away yeah. to find what he needs, you know, to find his own inner pieces. Of course, uh, you know, he meets his, I think it's a really touching scene where he meets his child. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a daughter, if I recall. Is it a daughter? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I found that to be uh, rather moving, but he doesn't find it here. Yep. You know, he goes, he, he goes elsewhere where, um, you know, obviously where, where he, I forget what, what country that was. If, um, I thought it was Germany. Germany. Okay. I, I, I'm not, I could be wrong. I could have sworn she was German. Right. But I'm, I agree with you, I, Walt. I, I thought that this was going to be, I thought that scene was going to be the end of those two characters. Um, and so when the writer, and I, I would think as a writer, your instinct is to end on that note and, and just really create this incredible, uh, incredibly dark statement, which would also be, would also be real. You know, that would be sadly uh, authentic, but um, I just, I, I find it interesting and, and, and worth talking about why that, that hope I, you know, is, 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 resolved there you know i think that's for me pretty uh pretty profound it's a brave choice to end on hope after such a dismal story because it, it really is it's it's flipping off racism yeah. you know you can't ever quell the human spirit you can dampen it and and you can crush it and you can torment it but the hope is always there the humanity is always there somewhere Right. And, you, and if it's not going to come to you, you have to go to it. That's right. Yep. Yep. The only crushed spirit in this film is the father. And he's crushed by his own hatred, you know, and, and uh, so he, he's the only person really who, okay, so let's talk about his death for a second. Did that surprise you? It did for me only because I didn't expect Jamie to live through that, through that barn scene. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a way of, of, you know, obviously he's killing his past um, in a way. And he can't, he can't move forward until he gets rid of that, that aspect. So, yes, he's, he's, he's doing it. And there is a spoiler alert. Sorry. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the son who kills the father. 
and, and all of what that entails, but it's also the only way he can move on from there. He has to escape from, from that. Um, and again, there's such symbolism in that gesture because right. that level of hatred, that old man was essentially immortal. Right. His hatred is never going to die until someone like the next generation kills it and yeah. buries it. Uh, and, I, and I guess that's getting back to what I was saying about this being a very literary story. That's, that's kind of lit that's a, that's a literary storytelling right there, you know, um, and, uh, you know, just so symbolic, so metaphorical. And sometimes when you're overly metaphorical in, in films, it doesn't play well necessarily. It, 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 although it often works well in literature, I, I think it still works well, um, in this particular case. So, well, it's funny you say that, Bill, because I know that, you know, we, Bill, we do some writing together and, and Bill has given me feedback on villainous characters I've created where he says they're too villainous. They're, they're just, they're not interesting. And yet um, this uh, Pappy's character breaks the rules a little bit. Yeah. He is thoroughly and utterly vile, every fiber of his being. And yet it works in this particular story. And by the way, I agree with you on that feedback, but it's just so rare to see. I look at this character and I go, that was, you know, um, there's no nuance to this man at all, but it works so well. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. That's yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, he, it's almost to the point where I, I hated the scenes he was in because I yeah. knew I'd have to listen to him. <laughs> there's, there's no redeeming quality to, to that character. Uh, whatsoever. No, no, so, and in the end, you know, when he's buried and, and they have to dig up a slave's grave to put him yeah. in. And of course, on one hand, you're like, uh, you know, that, that, he, he's put the rest in the, in the place that would be absolutely abhorrent to him. But I kept thinking to myself, I felt sorry for the poor slaves who right. were there. Right. 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 Have their rest disturbed by the presence of this, I don't know, this horrible. So we come back to that, to that final scene then, or one of the final scenes where they, they stop the, the cart with the Jackson family. And, and, and we come to find out that uh, Ronzel is underneath the, the floor of, of the, of the, um, of the cart and, and, Really, they have to get him out because he'll die otherwise. If they didn't kill him that time, they're going to kill him for sure. So the only way to, to save his life is to is to let go of him. And that's that's a brave choice. You know that the mother's attachment to him is such that she doesn't want to let him go. Although earlier in, in the film, she does say we have to let him go. He's not happy here. And it's the father who has, has um, trouble doing that. But they do agree once that violence occurs that they have to let him go in order to, to let him live. I like to think by the end that 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 Roncel and his and his wife and child found happiness, yeah, and that the entire Jackson family eventually migrated to Europe where they could you know find that you can live <laughs> in a society being treated and considered as equal right uh, and in fact, no other way to consider it is is even there and uh you know what happens to the McCallans i mean happens does the marriage go on you i mean how do you recover from something like that you know there's a, you know there's 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 no I'm, I'm not suggesting that the marriage falls apart because i think that we see them together at that you know when they're burying the father um and she seems resigned to the fact that that she does it uh, that she's going to be in this particular marriage but right. you know it brings up questions of happiness and and, and questions of of livability and, and and how do we go on uh, in, in ways that are extremely difficult. Yep. 
you know, it's funny if you take the title and you think about it, because we're talking about the literary elements of this film, then there's a pun on bound, because when you're mud bound, that means you're, you know, you're tied to the mud, but it also means you're headed towards the mud. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Just, yeah, everyone's mud bound, right? That's uh, the whole idea. We'll, we'll all end up... Uh, <laughs> sooner or later, yeah. Sooner or later, right? So... This is um, this has been 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 quite enjoyable um, for for me. Um, I think all three of us would highly recommend uh, anyone to see this film. Um, yes. It's yep. one of the powerful pieces, especially today, um, given the context with with which we find ourselves in. Not just in this country, but in the world, and in some of the protest movements that are springing up all over the place. Um, this film really, I think, resonates uh, on on many many levels. So. Um, I want to thank my colleagues, uh, Bill Ivers and Walter Freeman, for, for joining us. We are the Classroom Critics. Um, please um, download us wherever you happen to get your podcasts and um, visit us on Facebook and let us know what you think. Um, if there's a film that you think that we have left out that we should do, please let us know. And we're certainly um, open to um, reviewing and, and talking about films that we uh, have not done. So um, again, on behalf of my colleagues uh, and the classroom critics, thanks for listening.